awesome to have him here to tell us a little bit about what's going on with JavaScript. So, Dominic Denicola. All right, JavaScript. Right, so where did this all start, this whole JavaScript thing? Well, it started in 1995, back when we were doing form validation and image rollovers and hiding the URL where people went in our status bar back when browsers allowed that. So that was the point of JavaScript when I first picked it up. Um, and that was, that was really fun, but I think it's grown a little bit since then. But it's been a slow process. So first we had to standardize the language. You know, we had to take this thing that Brent and I made in 15 days or 10 days or whatever it is and put it into a spec um, and put it through ECMA. And, and then we had to come out with some competing implementations. So my favorite is Internet Explorer 4, because that's when this whole DHTML craze started. I don't know if you remember DHTML, but it, it made some really, really fun websites. That was the first time we could actually make things move around the screen with document.layers and document.all. Document.all still haunts us today. It's a truthy property that isn't, or it's a falsy property that has properties. It's like horrible. Um, but, but that was DHTML, and uh, yeah. So it, skipping forward a few years, we standardized the next version of JavaScript language. And it's fun to, to point out the things that were added in ES3, because there are a lot of things we take for granted today. We don't really realize that the language has evolved so much over time. You know, things like function expressions, which you use all the time today, you know, it's all, that's all that CoffeeScript supports. It doesn't even do function declarations. Those came in a new revision of the language. You know, try, catch, finally, and regular expressions, if you can imagine JavaScript without those. That was the case for, for you know, four years on the web. Um, and there was this kind of lull for many years, right? And, and the W3C was pushing all these XML solutions for our problems. And we were going to make all of our web, app, or our, our web sites out of XHTML 1.1 and, and 2.0, and SVG and X events and all that. So in 2004, a new group broke, broke off from the W3C called the, the WhatWug as I say, or the what Ouija, as they call themselves. Um, they, they focus on the, the web applications and the idea that now it's time to actually start building rich interactive applications on the web. And that's where JavaScript started to kind of see its, its new renaissance as, you know, now we're going to say the web is a platform for applications. And things like Gmail and, and Outlook started popping up around this time. You know, and speaking of, of Outlook, you know, Microsoft Outlook Online was where we first saw XML HTTP request, you know, and, and AJAX, you know, which stands for Asynchronous JavaScript and JSON. Um, so that was really the first time that we could do the whole server interaction. Uh, and uh, first it appeared as an ActiveX control, but then it was exposed to JavaScript via Mozilla, you know, put it as a property of the global, where it has appeared ever since. Um, you know, and, and as you can see, things are starting to pick up speed. Now, I don't, I don't know the first time you guys remember using jQuery, but for me, it was pretty exciting to finally like, have a unified API that cross, solved all these cross-browser issues and all these, you know, I could add events with, with a single signature in all these browsers. And so that, jQuery started coming out and made JavaScript popular to the masses. And for a lot of people, perhaps many here, that was their first exposure to JavaScript at all. Um, you, know, you still see the job ads, at least in the US, for you need a jQuery developer, and they don't mention JavaScript, so kind of sad. Um, but anyway, you know, things started really picking up over the last few years. You know, in, in 2008, V8 was released. That was only a short time ago, but it's hard to underestimate how much it has impacted the JavaScript landscape ever since. You know, the, the speed that they brought to the table was so far ahead of any engine at the time. You know, if you see the charts for the, the speed race that took off in JavaScript engines, how they're starting to approach you know, native speeds these days, back in the day, that was not at all how it worked. It was all interpreted. It was all very slow. 
Um, and, and of course, Douglas Crockford, as he likes to say, he discovered that JavaScript has good parts, and he wrote a book about them. And so we kind of started to get the inkling that JavaScript was not just this crappy language that we all use for scripting and image rollovers and uh, DHTML, but it actually maybe was a language in its own right that had an existence outside of the browser and outside of you know, something we had to delve into when we could take ourselves away from our beautiful .NET and Java and PHP, well, PHP, um, server. And, and so, you know, as momentum gathered, you know, we have a new version of JavaScript, and we had this community-led standardization effort. It started out as server.js, but they renamed themselves to common.js, focusing on you know, things that the language needed or standard libraries that the language needed. And you know, a lot of their efforts fell by the wayside, but you know, the module system that they created is still with us today in Node and, in some extent, in AMD. And uh, even the unit testing spec that they wrote up influences QUnit and the Node's assert library. Now, of course, in 2009, that was the year that Node.js was announced at JSConf U 2009. The first time that we really saw JavaScript used on the server in a, in a wide you know, way that, that this was the first time that people had latched onto the asynchronicity of JavaScript on the server. Before that, there were other solutions, but they were all synchronous. They didn't really embrace the JavaScript you know, ethos. And you know, PhoneGap and, of course, the first JSConf, speaking of community-led efforts. So 2009, I think, was really the first year that JavaScript is starting to explode, starting to kind of gain larger developer mind shares. Maybe this is the next big thing. Um, and, and our client apps got a lot better. I mean, it's really kind of crazy to think that just three years ago, there didn't exist a, a backbone and a require. But if you go back and look at the commit history, that's the first time we had access to these kind of structured ways of creating client-side web applications, starting to bring things that in other, other languages might have been obvious, you know, how to do MVC and how to do uh, module system to our client-side JavaScript development. And skipping ahead a few years, right, in Windows 8, when they announced this, you know, it, it may not be so exciting to all the Mac users in the room, but it was really exciting because it's the first time that a major corporation has said, this is our operating system. It's going to be based on HTML5 and JavaScript. That's how you write your apps. And in another tack, there's a, the node copter movement started just last year, the idea that you could use JavaScript to control AR drones, control copters in the real world. And we'll talk more about that later. And this year, of course, we have much more going on. We have, you know, extending that into the hardware, we have node bots. And we have Ember and Angular fighting for dominance in, the, in the, the web platform space. We have the extensible web manifesto, which Angelina mentioned, but is really exciting because it's saying that JavaScript is the foundation of our platform, and it's how things should be exposed, and it's how developers should interact with the, the platform and how they should iterate with standards bodies together. And ASMJS, my personal favorite, a really exciting way of using JavaScript as the bytecode of the future. So looking forward to next year, what are we going to have? We're going to have ES6 finalized by the end of this year, so we're going to start seeing implementations, we already see some, but we're going to see them they're finalized in 2014. ES7 is on a fast track. They're going to try and you know, release it after, after one year of just adding small incremental features. And of course, whatever else we come up with, you know, there's plenty of surprises waiting. So let's do a quick overview of JS on the front end, because you know, that's, that's frontiers. We're on the front end here. Um, in, and we'll skip through this quickly, but you know, it's, it's worth keeping in mind what the, what the landscape is as kind of an intro to JavaScript in the wider space. So in the beginning, there was jQuery, of course. And then we said MVC. That seems good. Other languages have, have figured that one out. So we have Backbone. And these days, you know, we, we have Ember and Angular. And we say, and this is really where the action is these days. So if you're not looking into these frameworks, I would definitely encourage you to do so. Um, what's interesting is that they take slightly different approaches, but they both kind of have recognized as a foundation, data binding is the way to go. So you know, Angular, their slogan is HTML enhanced for web apps. And I think this is really telling, because that is what they're doing. They're saying, create your custom elements, create your directives, create your custom attributes. 
you know, we're going to allow you to do all these things to create custom widgets, and that's how you build your web apps. They don't put the focus on the overall app as much as they put it on the individual components. And they say you should build a larger app out of composable little components. Um, and this is a really good approach for things like trading systems or you know, dashboards, where you have lots of widgets on one screen. And uh, so Ember, on the other hand, you know, their, their tagline is a framework for building ambitious web applications. So I think the sweet spot for Ember is what I call multi-page, single-page apps, where you have multiple screens or tabs or you know, areas of your app where you need to navigate. And what they emphasize is that this all maps down to the URLs. So they, they say that you, know, you give structure to your app by saying these are the resources that you are going to. These are the, the places that you end up. Um, and these are the, so that, that ties into their model layer where you pull things from the back end and associate them with the URL. And then you tie that through with convention over configuration to the views and to the, the models and to the data. And, and that's how you set up your app. And it all ties together. You know, they also have a components framework, but their primary focus is on giving you structure, giving you this whole and all-encompassing thing. So that's a, that's a pretty interesting contrast, I think, when you're choosing between these frameworks. It's not like one is a direct competitor of the other as much as they have different overlapping areas where one is more appropriate than the other. But of course, why, why let the libraries have all the fun, right? Why should, why should we have to use Ember or Angular? Well, you know, as, as Angelina mentioned, in detail, we have web components coming up. So the, the exciting part here, I think, you know, is, is custom elements, because there's, there's the start of the web platform embracing JavaScript as the extensibility point. They're saying, oh, we're going to actually have constructible new my element, and you're just going to register that with JavaScript. It's going to have its own prototype chain. You're going to use normal JavaScript classes, and that's how you're going to create a, a web component. And so, you know, in general, uh, well, yeah, web components are all the things we saw and more, and you can use them in Polymer. So, been over that. But Polymer is really cool because it's a polyfill for for the future of the web components. And this word polyfill, you know, like probably going to be a polyfill. Um, is, uh, is, a, is a really important one because this is, these days, how a lot of specs are written and how a lot of specs come into being. You know, in, in this case, it's, uh, well, Angular was kind of the original polyfill for the custom elements idea, for the, for the web components idea, for saying, you know, this is the something we'd like to have happen. And uh, now Polymer is saying, okay, well, we know exactly what we want to have happen. We're writing these specs in tandem with this polyfill for how they're going to work. Um, and, and this is all part of the underlying you know, extensible web manifesto philosophy that I and others are, have put together. You know, the idea that we want to put the web platform in developers' hands. We want to say, you use JavaScript to prototype the features you want. Use the create libraries like Polymer or like Angular or like Sizzle is my favorite example, the idea of using CSS selectors you know, to select DOM elements. And eventually, we will get those into the platform or roll those back in throughout the process. And this is a really good way for developers to get involved in standards and to get involved in creating these things is through uh, you know, this extensible web philosophy. All right, so enough about the web platform, right? Because JavaScript has grown far beyond that. What about everything else? Well, obviously, Node.js is the, is the biggest player in this room. And I personally prefer the, or, well, this logo for Node.js. I think it really captures the spirit of, of Node as kind of this uh, strap a rocket engine to a turtle, and because back when Node started, JavaScript was still in this stage of meh, JavaScript. Who knows? It's this language some people use on their front end. Um, but uh, you know, Node has really kind of captured the community spirit for how you're going to be developing new things in JavaScript. This is where we saw modules and binary data, for example, before we saw anything else. One of my favorite stories on that binary data idea is uh, you know back in back when Node started, 
clearly it's a server. Clearly it needs to deal with binary data payloads. So these, they'd come up with their own little abstraction. And at the same time, WebGL was starting to take off. And it was standardized by the, the Kronos group because they standardized OpenGL. And so they were the ones who came up with the typed arrays and the array buffers and all that. And there was some kind of discussion between the, the people in Node, the, the original kind of people who sat around and coded all night on Node. You know, should we adopt this typed array thing? Should we go with that? Would that be that we go? And from what I hear, you know, Ryan Dahl, the, the original creator of Node, got really angry with this discussion at some point. He's just like, the experts on binary data in JavaScript are in this room right now. So we're going to decide what to do. And you know, if they'd waited, we would have been in a much worse place in Node. We wouldn't have had a binary data abstraction. So you know, now, it's, now typed arrays are starting to settle down. They're getting incorporated into ES6 formally. But I think it's kind of a telling how Node leads the way on a lot of these things, on a lot of the interfaces that we want. And this, is, this proves true time and time again. I mean, they, they're prototyping streams, and we're working very hard to get streams into the browser right now. You know, they're, they're where a lot of the experimentation goes on. They had a package manager before any of us. And we'll talk more about that later. That's Node. Um, and the thing about Node is because, because it's this own JavaScript runtime, it took JavaScript out of the browser, it enabled a lot more use cases. So if you wanted to control uh, a Node copter, a copter with JavaScript, it's as simple as this. You can have this little REPL and type these little commands. You know, it's, it's literally as simple as take off, do a flip, spin, go forward. That's all it takes to control something as complicated and, you know, crazy as these little copters. You can make, and people have written you know, programs to deliver your beer to you with these copters, program, copters that will take over other copters and with a virus hive mind and descend upon the city of New York, and maybe not that far. But you know, I mean, we're, we're not that far away from, from Node Terminator. Um, so, so, eh, uh, be scared, uh, maybe. I don't know, those Node people are scary sometimes. Um, but it goes beyond, you know, copters is, is one particular instance of the idea of node controlling hardware and controlling the real world. And here's my fun, a really fun example using this library created by Wick Waldron, who originally was on the jQuery core team, or still is, but you know, th this is what he's really into now, is enabling people to control hardware with node. So here's a, a tiny little piece of code, you know, something almost jQuery-esque, with a very nice API for controlling a sonar device that you would strap to your Arduino, for example. So you can control all these kinds of appendages, whether they be sonar or radar or you know, servos and all this stuff. And people have created really impressive node bots with this. You know, Sarah Chips also gives a lot of talks on this. And her favorite, or my favorite example of hers is that they created a node bot that would answer the doorbell for them. So they could, on their phones, be like, oh, yeah, press a button, let that person up. So the idea that JavaScript can control the real world is pretty powerful. And it goes even lower level than that. There's this project called Node Serial Port. And when I first heard about that, I was like, OK, who uses serial ports anymore? I, I didn't understand, because you know, that's what I think of as COM1, right? And, and so then I thought, well, that must not be it. right? People don't actually use serial ports. They must be talking about something else. So that was my next thought, was, <laughs> was a Node Serial Port. Um, but, but I quickly, when I asked some people for clarification, they, they pointed out that, no, actually, USB is a serial port. So, so when people say serial port, they actually mean USB. And I think Node USB would have made a lot more sense to me, but probably less technically accurate. But the idea is that you have this, this really easy way of using JavaScript to control, at the very lowest level, the devices appended to your computer. So you know, it, it, what we're doing here is we're just writing data out and getting data back in, you know, again, using a nice API. But this can control anything. So in some sense, you can write like a device driver for whatever you want to cook up, whatever you create or whatever you buy, 
to control it with JavaScript. So JavaScript really has the ability to reach very deep into the real world. And the person who creates the node serial port library uses this to create devices for assisted living for old people. And you know, some other people are using it for all kinds of crazy stuff, node terminator, as I said. But uh, you know, th that's pretty exciting. All right, moving out of the real world, back to perhaps the opposite of the real world um, is Windows 8. And uh, you know, I mean, again, it was really exciting to see this when it came out. The idea that we're going to write our apps for this major operating system, which, despite the, the census of the room, you know, still has an extremely large market share. It, it's going uh, to transform the way that people write apps. And a lot of people got very upset, because this was Microsoft essentially dumping Silverlight on the floor. But they chose us, so I'm not mad. Um, and uh, you know, building off of that, right? This is a trend. We have we have Firefox OS, where everything is built HTML5 JavaScript, even the basic UI elements, the the app drawer, things like that. And Chrome OS, of course. You know, you write your apps as Chrome apps, and Chrome apps kind of anti-webby because they have all these privileged APIs. But hopefully, we'll fix that um, with more APIs. But what's interesting about all these platforms, right? The, these ideas that we're going to write our entire platform in JavaScript is now you might want to have access to something lower level, something. You know, something that you might normally not consume in a web page, something like Git. And so people have actually started doing these kinds of crazy things. They've put things like Git into JavaScript. So JSGit is a, is a Kickstarter project by uh, Tim Caswell, who's active in the node space, but also this crazy wizard experimenter guy. And so in his, in his Kickstarter-funded time, he's essentially writing a Git implementation in JavaScript. And I think this is really exciting because it proves that JavaScript can do anything. Like you, you would think Git is out of the scope of JavaScript, but it's not. We have all the primitives we need. We have binary data. We have HTTP requests. We have file system access. We have all of that. We can do Git in JavaScript, and he's doing it. And now we can run it on our, on our Windows RT tablets or our Chromebooks or our whatever. We can do Git. We can do, and that's no, no need for even native bindings, right? There's no C++ in this project at all. Um, but it, you know, even before that, Things like PDF.js had proved we can render PDFs in JavaScript. And if you use Firefox these days, which I still do, um, I know like when I look at my analytics logs, 70% of my visitors are using Chrome, but I still use Firefox. This is the default PDF renderer. Is it is a PDF renderer use it, written in JavaScript? And so it, it proves that you know, with the power of things like Canvas, or which kind of gives low-level access to the screen, you can render whatever you want, pixel-perfect PDFs. And, and this is pretty exciting. But even more exciting is this new project that just got turned on in Firefox Nightlies recently called Shumway. And uh, Shumway is an implementation of the entire Flash VM in JavaScript. <laughs> so uh, yeah. So, so this is pretty impressive, because you take all of this ActionScript code written in an entirely different language, and you, you take out the bytecode from the SWF file, and you transform it into JavaScript that you can run in your Firefox and using, using Canvas and using all these APIs. And it actually works. People are running Candy Crush at high numbers of frames per second you know, in, in Firefox with the Firefox Nightlies with Shumray. So JavaScript is swallowing everything is, I guess, the, uh, the moral here. So one big thing to make JavaScript swallow everything is the notion of ecosystem, and the notion of platform, and the notion of sharing, um, and, and writing code that is reusable for other people, and composing code out of code created originally by other people. And I think the answer to this is in NPM, which stands for JavaScript Package Manager. Um, the thing about package managers 
is they're based on network effects. And it's important when you're creating a package manager and when you're entering an ecosystem, when you're writing code to share with other people, that you don't restrict yourself to one segment of the audience. You don't say, I'm only for browsers, or I'm only for people who use this. So if you silo yourself into you know, Jam.js, or Bower, or Component 1, or uh, Volo, or whatever, you're saying, essentially, I don't want to participate in the wider JavaScript package management ecosystem. So NPM is, is where all the code goes. That's where you should put your things. And most of the packages on NPM actually work in the browser with the help of something called Browserify. Uh, which adds you know, basic support for things like event emitters and things like that to the browser, and even HTTP via XML HTTP request or file system via Chrome's file system API. So this is, makes it very easy to create code that builds on top of other people's code. And you can kind of see this because if you look at the dependency graph for NPM, you know, it, it's pretty massive. Um, people are depending on each other's code in an amazingly complex and multivariate graph. And, so you know, the biggest package, the most, the most dependent upon package in all of NPM is underscore, which is very clearly works on both client and server. But most of these do as well, even things like request, you know, which makes XML HTTP requests when used in the browser. So this is the ecosystem that you want to be part of, not the you know, 200 package ecosystem of those other competitor package managers. You want to take part in this large network of growing code so that you can build on top of other people's things, and they can build on top of you. Um, and uh, a good example of this, I think, is the Voxel.js project, which, if you've seen it, is basically Minecraft in the browser. You know, again, one of these crazy JavaScript can do everything things. But it uses WebGL, uses all these web technologies. And what's cool is that they've built it out of a series of composed modules. So if you want to just use the core game engine, you can use that. Or if you just want to have something that will render textures from texture files onto WebGL surfaces, you can use that. Or if you want something that just does a request animation payment polyfill, you can use that. It all comes together in this large dependency graph that builds into Minecraft in the browser. And people can take those apart and create little packages that are plugins or create other game engines that build on top of these. This is the ecosystem that allows JavaScript to, to thrive. So there's that. All right, for the, for the technical stuff, to close us off, JS the language, right? This is what you all, well, this is what a lot of you on Twitter want to hear about. Um, Stopping off before we get to the ES6 stuff, shout out again to ASM.js. In case you weren't aware, the idea of ASM.js is to take a subset of JavaScript, to say JavaScript has you know, bitwise operators and typed arrays to create large blocks of memory that don't get garbage collected, and uh, it has integer multiplication with a new addition to the standard, math.imol, and it allows you to compile higher level languages like C++ um, or, or anything else down to JavaScript down to this subset of JavaScript. And this subset is extremely well optimized by today's VMs. And Mozilla has put in some work to make it even more optimized via this ahead of time compilation. That's, that's really what ASM.js is about. But it performs very well in all the browsers. And Chrome is pursuing a strategy where they don't use ahead of time compilation, where they just optimize it anyway. Um, and and you know, everybody wishes them luck on that. Brendan Eich is skeptical. I'm hopeful. I don't know anything about it, so I can't really judge feasibility. Um, but it's really exciting that we're going to just take C++ and shove it at the browser and say, here, you know, run it. And this allows you to do things like take all the games that have been created. You know, you, nobody's going to rewrite you know, Knights of the Old Republic, one of my favorite Star Wars games. Nobody's going to rewrite that in JavaScript. But they can compile it down to a with ASM.js and run that in the browser. And now you can play you know, Be a Jedi in a galaxy far, far away in JavaScript. 
in your browser. And this all ties into the theme of JS as the assembly of the web, right? The, then, and that's kind of interesting because it's like what you would handwrite sometimes if you were really hardcore, but also as, as the VM of the web, the idea that you can write whatever language you want and it'll compile down to JavaScript and it will be the, the foundation. And we won't need any of this kind of bytecode. And there's some really good arguments. Brennan Ike gets on arguments on Hacker News. Love him for it. Very, very fun to read, um, where he tells you exactly why a VM, a bytecode, you know, agnostic bytecode is not the way to go, that JavaScript is the bytecode and the VM of the web. Um, so again, JavaScript is going to swallow all these other languages, all those things. And there's, there's compilers for all of these to JavaScript. You can look at Jeremy Ashkenaz maintains a, a big page full of all the different things that compile to JavaScript. And uh, all these are on there. So you can write any of these, even if you like Haskell, if you're one of those people, you can write that in the browser today. Of course, the, the original compiled to JS language, not the original, but the most prominent, is CoffeeScript. And CoffeeScript is really cool, and I got really into it for a while. But there's something even better coming along um, in terms of transpiled languages, and that's ES6. And the main transpiler for ES6, for the next version of JavaScript to the current version of JavaScript, is called Tracer. Tracer doesn't have a logo, so I made it one. Um, uh, it turns out that if you look up Tracer on Google Images, and actually in the dictionary, it's a guy who does parkour, which is this acrobatic urban thing. So that's, that's now the Tracer logo. You know, you're welcome, Eric Arvidsson. Um, uh, and it's kind of kicking away the, the coffee cup because uh, it's better. Yeah, well, we can leave that out of the official logo. Anyway, the best way to use, to use Tracer, I think, is this Browserify transform called ES6ify, which is great because Browserify has all the infrastructure for bundling and source maps and all that built into it. So here's an example, and I think it's big enough to see, where we're using ES6 classes in the browser, stepping through them in the Chrome debugger, you know, using all these features, super, uh, so on and so forth. And you can use everything. You can, you know, this is class syntax with methods and so on, but you can use arrow functions and generators, generators um, and, and all the, all the fun, fun sugar that we'll, that we'll talk about momentarily. So yeah, ES6, um, you can use it today. But, but what is ES6, right? So what is the point of ES6? Well, you know, the biggest point, I think, is to not stagnate our language. Right? If we stagnate in one place, we get in the situation HTML was in in 1999, where we're sitting still, you know, waiting for WPF and Silverlight and so on to come and eat our lunch uh, and Flash. Um, may it rest in peace. Uh, but uh, but we, need a, we need to keep up with the times. We need to create a productive language for developers, something that people will, will really enjoy programming in and be able to create powerful abstractions in um, for the next level. And this is summarized in the official goals of the, the TC39 Standards Committee, which is to be better for applications and for libraries, including the DOM. They want to be able to explain the entire DOM in JavaScript instead of this crazy C++ magic JS IDL land, or web IDL land. Um, uh, you know, and, and of course, code generators, right? So we want to be able to make ASMJS and, and anything else as fast as possible. So what's new in ES6 anyway, right? So let's go over some of these things in turn, because I think people generally, generally enjoy finding out about these if you haven't already. So starting out easy on the syntactic level, right? So we have class sugar. We have class and extends and super. And I want to emphasize this is just sugar, right? This is already JavaScript's prototypal inheritance model. It's the things we do today. But you don't have to use any of those stupid libraries where they're you know, dot extend, blah, blah, blah. 
um, my favorite super simple class library for JavaScript, number 3000. Um, you can just use what's built into the language, and it'll desugar it for you into these patterns that we're used to. Arrow functions, easy win. Um, notable that they have lexically scoped this, so they're like CoffeeScript's fat arrow functions. They preserve the this from the outer scope. Um, there was talk of adding a thin arrow function, but it was said that that was one arrow too far, and I somewhat agree. Um, destructuring, this is a pretty, pretty simple one at first glance, but it's actually really neat at, at second glance, because you know, the idea is you know, this will, instead of creating a temporary variable and pulling off properties, you can directly assign variables to the properties. But this has some interesting aspects. First, I think it'll change the way we code, because it makes ret multiple return values really idiomatic, really easy to, to create, and really easy to consume. And second, because it's really optimizable. So let's say get point was actually an XYZ point, uh, three dimensions. Well, if you see on the call site that they're actually only using the X and Y, the compiler can say, oh, I don't need to allocate any space for the Z. And in fact, I don't need to do any of those computations for the Z, as long as they don't have side effects. And it can throw that out. So it makes your code nice and optimizable for the compiler. So it's a good target for, for, these, these language, or for the language to add. Rest and spread, easy wins, right? We can, we can finally stop messing around with slice and splice and array.prototype.slice.call to get the arguments. This essentially obsoletes the arguments array entirely, so we no longer have to use that stupid thing. Um, we can just use dot, 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 and everything will be handled. Um, and final kind of syntactic tweak I want to talk about is parameter defaults. Um, this is a fun feature because it's actually a lot more complicated than, it think, than you'd think because you can put anything on the right-hand side of the equal sign. So, for example, I could put x on the right-hand side, referring to an earlier parameter. I think it's really complicated. And you could even put expression statements on the right-hand side that would like modify variables or modify other parameters. And so this is why this feature actually is still undergoing some spec churn. But in the basic case, it's just going to make your life easier. And in the hard case, it's going to be a good source of brain teasers for the next few years. Uh, <laughs> Next kind of major set of ES6 features is the data structures. And some of these are, are kind of just sugar, some of them are more general parts of the language. So map is the first time we've been able to actually do an object-to-object -object map with O1 access time. You can simulate map today, but you can't really do it efficiently. You can't say, you know, I'm going to have objects as my keys, and I'm going to have O1 access time. You can do maintain two parallel arrays, but that doesn't have good, good performance characteristics. So that's going to enable a lot of use cases. And set, of course, is just a kind of specialization of this, the idea that you can do on one lookup. There's some really fun code that allows you to uniqueize an array much faster than you were previously able to do with a simple syntax. It's just like create a set, turn it into an array. Very easy. Um, and weak map and weak set, these are interesting because they're not, they're, they're not named very well. They're named for what they are, but not for what you'll use them for. So, you think like weak map and weak set, oh, that's just like a worse version of map and set. I won't use those. I'll use the strong map and the strong set. Um, but actually, so weak map, the idea is you put an object as a key, and you put other stuff as the value, and then you can look that stuff up, but it doesn't hold on to the key for garbage collection, right? Because if you put an object in a data structure, say an array today, it's going to hold a reference to that. But if you put in a weak map, it won't. So what this allows you to do is put private state on objects both your own objects and other people's objects, and uh, then look it up later. So an easy example of this is jQuery's data property, which has its own kind of semantics, needs to get cleaned up from the DOM. That's why you have to call remove all the time. This will just make that automatically work. 
but it's also the essential way of doing private state in JavaScript while still staying in the prototype model. Because if you remember, you know, if you've ever tried to do private state, you essentially get forced into the closure pattern, which makes you allocate a new copy of each method for every, every time that you create the object, just to have access to the state you've stored in the closure. With weak maps, you have true privacy without the expense of the prototype, just by keeping the weak map inaccessible and making it only accessible to the prototype. Weak set is, again, it's a little specialization you know, of weak map. You can easily make it in terms of that. But the use here is for something called branding. And what this means is essentially checking that an object is of the type that you want it to be. So the idea here is you're writing something like the DOM, and somebody calls a pen child with some random thing. And you want to make sure that that's actually an element and not just something pretending to be an element by having three or four properties that make it look like an element. Well, the, the way that you'd use weak set to accomplish this is every time you create an element, you would put it in the weak set. And since it's weak, it wouldn't hold on to it. It wouldn't keep a reference to it that prevents garbage collection. But this means that later, when somebody passes you in the element, or the, the possible element, you check. Is it in the weak set? Yes? OK, it's a real element. Go. If not, then no, don't let it through. It's, it's going to mess up and cause crashes because your C++ isn't equipped to deal with it. So that's a, that's a pretty nice kind of set of features at the low level. Um, the iteration protocol, so it's the for of loop is the new way of iterating over everything, over arrays, maps, sets, even user-created objects. There's a simple hook that you can create that allows you to return an iterator that allows you to iterate over your own data structures. So if you want to create a breadth-first tree with its own little iteration protocol, you can do that now. And everybody knows to just consume it with for of. And this kind of exemplifies how ES6 works and the web in general works. We can't take out old broken things or change them like for in. We just add new things and hope that you forget about the old one forever. Never use for in ever. Um, so, so that's a nice unification. Finally, in data structures, typed objects. The idea here is to provide a compilation target for things like C Sharp or Java where they say, oh, I have a, a field, you know, a struct that, that has these, these fields of this type. And, and you build structs up from other structs or from the primordial binary data types of like uint um, or, or just int. And this will allow really compact, memory efficient, you know, garbage collection friendly representations of primordial types. For games is a good example of this, but also transpilers. All right, so finally, the game changers. What are, what are the new things in ES6 that are really going to change how JavaScript works, how we write JavaScript? Um, well, first, of course, is generators. And you may have seen some articles on this. And they're good, for, they're good for two things. First is lazy sequences. So all those array methods that you like to use that you end up feeling bad about because you're like, oh, I filtered and then I mapped, so I made two loops through the array. That's bad. I should probably go back to using a for loop. Well, with generators, you don't have to do that. It'll just, you can have the sequence be lazily produced, lazily consumed, lazily transformed, and then at the end, when it's time to actually use it, that's when those things get applied. So this is going to be really interesting for collection libraries. The other thing that they can allow you to do, and this is where they've been getting a lot of attention, especially in the Node.js space, is they can allow you to do kind of async await type syntax, if you're used to that from C Sharp or from other languages. The idea is that you use the generators, which pause execution flow, and you say, oh, wait until this promise fulfills or rejects, and then come back. And if the promise rejects, then throw an error. And we can handle the asynchronous error with try catch finally. And if the promise fulfills, then we just get the value and we put it in this variable. And then you can use it like you would a normal synchronous control flow. 
So this kind of brings some sanity back to JavaScript's asynchronous programming. No more callback hell, no more crazy combinator functions. Just puts everything on the same footing as your normal things. You can do a for loop and then put asynchronous operations in the middle, for example. It's a big deal. Promises, of course, go along well with generators. They're the idea that we're going to standardize the asynchronous pattern that's been used in pretty much every client-side library for the last five years, and we're going to put it in the language. It's going to be standard. You know, I, I, I drove up, or I took a bus up to Boston and presented the spec, and they were like, looks good, so now it's in ES6. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right, one thing that doesn't get a lot of attention is subclassable built-ins. So this is kind of a subtle feature, but the idea is that they've made some under-the-hood changes to how objects are created and allocated that allow you to derive subclasses of arrays, dates, regular expressions, and all that stuff, maps and sets, and it'll have access to the same kind of private internal state. Because if you try and do this right now, date is the most obvious example. It'll just say, cannot call method, undefined like, thingy. It doesn't have internal date state, right? But now it'll work is it because of these changes they've made. And arrays, you can get your own subclass of array with the magic length behavior, which you can't do right now. Um, regular expressions, of course, you can make your own extended regular expressions that inherit all the behavior of regular expressions without having to rebuild it from scratch. All right, um, proxies, virtual objects. The idea is that you can respond to anything that the language does to you. It's called the meta object protocol, whether it be a get of a property or a set of a property or a call of a method or any of that, you know, even, even a getting of prototypes. And you can intercept it and do whatever you want. And my favorite example of why this will be useful is we won't have to do the stupid get and set that you see in Backbone and Ember and makes it just a horrible travesty of JavaScript. It's like, let's go to this other meta level where properties are represented by strings, but not normal JavaScript strings for properties, just our own little strings for properties. We'll just have virtual objects that transparently take care of that for you and allow you to bypass all of that headache. So that, that's pretty exciting. Um, you can also have no such method type things. And Actually, a really interesting example of that is uh, remote objects, so proxies for remote objects. The idea is that you create a proxy that whatever happens to it, you just record it, and you return another proxy. So then you record what happens to that proxy, and eventually you have some terminator, like, okay, wait for the result. And what happens at that point is you take all those things you recorded, you send them over the wire to some other computer, say, hey, they want the property of this object, and they want to call a method on it, and then they want to get the property of that result, and then you send that back to the original computer perhaps as a promise. So proxies will allow you to transparently do that kind of thing, or almost transparently, as long as you have that little terminator. And so that's a pretty exciting use case for proxies that I don't think has gotten a lot of attention, but I think people will really start exploring once they start changing the game. Template strings are personal, another personal favorite. Um, the idea is you know, not only will we finally get stupid multi-line strings and uh, you know, non-escaped, no, no more escapes inside our things, uh, we'll be able to add these little functions at the beginning. So this is an example of the JSX, uh, which is Facebook's proprietary extension, or you know, their custom extension to, to JavaScript for putting HTML in JavaScript. Well, you can just do that with standard JavaScript now. And what's interesting about these is these functions get enough data, these J, like JSX is just a function, that it can intelligently figure out what to do when it sees these escapes. So it can say, oh, I see that I need to insert the URL parameter here, but I'm in the middle of an href, so let me attribute escape that. So any quotes, don't do XSS. Or, oh, I'm in the middle of a text. I'm in the middle of a tag right here, so let me you know, HTML escape that so people can't put 
things inside of it. Um, so contextual auto-escaping of this sort allows pretty powerful applications. And finally, last CS6 feature, modules. Then the big benefit of these is just we won't have to have the stupid module debate anymore. Like the, the specs been iterated on, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, the specs been iterated on. It's gotten a lot better since it started out. If you've ever looked it up and gotten mad, it's in a pretty good place now. It has a really nice pipeline. And finally, we won't have to worry about stupid module format wars. All right, final final set of things. ES7 clearly better than ES6 because seven is one more than six. What could possibly be coming in ES7? Well, we don't really know for sure, but these are just some of the whispers that I've picked up by paying close attention to mailing lists. So weak references. You know, it turns out weak maps and weak references are orthogonal. You cannot build one on top of the other uh, either way. Um, so this allows you to do things like say, oh, I'm holding on to this object weakly because I'm going to data bind it or something like that. And it'll automatically, if it gets garbage collected, then you'll have to say, oh, is it null? If so, don't do that. Um, if, if not, then it's not garbage collected yet. This was pretty tricky to work out because garbage collection is not something you want to expose to the user directly. Otherwise, they'll start writing code that only works in Chrome's garbage collector, for example. But they, they kind of figured out a nice trick to make it work. So that'll probably be coming in ES7. And you know, building off of the generators and promises theme from ES6, there's some hope of making a syntax to make it even better, even nicer. Because generators, you need this little wrapper function to, to transition into generator land. So this is one possible syntax being floated around. You know, it's, and we don't really know. Nobody really knows what exactly it's going to look like. But this is one idea. If people want to write transpilers to prototype things, that would be much appreciated. We get some idea of what people really enjoy. Object.observe. So this is the other, the other half of the data binding story for the client side. But also, it allows you to do general JavaScript object observation. It is whenever an object changes, you'll be notified of it at the end of the next turn. And you'll be able to react to that appropriately. So this allows you to then go update the DOM. Or if you have a computed property, be able to go update that computed property, things like that. And then what's cool is that there's no overhead as long as nothing happens. It doesn't actually slow down your app. There's no dirty checking overhead like there is in Angular, where every time somebody clicks or key presses, they have to go traverse the entire object graph to see if anything changed. So there's some really nice graphs at the, the last T39 meeting minutes that you can check out to see how much faster it is than Angular's technique. Um, value types, a personal favorite of Brendan Eich, is that finally we'll have stupid integers in JavaScript. So, yeah, yay. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll, we'll be able to, to create our own as well. And he has this really cool value class syntax he's been floating around with user-defined operator overloading. So you'll be able to say, you know, complex number plus complex number equals others complex number. And there's some kind of tentative ideas for literal syntax. So you can do L as a suffix and get a long integer, things like that. Um, and you know, you'll be able to override all these things. So you could say this URL is equal to this URL with the double equals operator. No overriding triple equals, which is a bit of a shame, but also understandable, because if they're actually different objects, yeah. All right, last thing. This is just a, a personal, like everybody wants this. Stupid bind operator. This is shorthand for object.foo.bind object. I think this makes it a lot more transparent how you pull things out of objects in JavaScript. And everybody kind of likes this, and it's just not, hasn't had the time to spec it. So hopefully we'll get that little tiny thing into ES7. All right. And that's it. Yay, JavaScript.
excited about the um, those virtual objects. Yeah, that is proxies. so legit. It's always like that that challenge of like you want to. I was thinking of that that situation where uh, events are coming in. Uh, let's say you have like JavaScript running the page, but you don't really want to act on that yet. Right. Uh, you just want to like kind of capture all those calls as they come in. And then at some point, like when, when the rest of your page is ready, then yeah. you'll be like, okay, okay, we'll hit on that now. Exactly. I was like, yes, please. Cool. That is fantastic stuff. Um, really excited. Uh, someone was actually asking about streams. Um, Node has done a lot of work in streams, had a bunch of iterations. What about streams in kind of the browser and yeah, yeah. ECMAScript? Yeah, no. Uh, so this is something I'm very interested in and working on. Um, so there is a streams API that you should not look up because it will make you cry. Um, it's very bad, and nobody wants to implement it, uh, besides maybe the guys who wrote it. But I think they were invited experts, so they're not implementers, so we're safe. Um, what we need to do is take the lessons that Node has learned and not necessarily copy them because they made some mistakes along the way, but figure out what the correct streams API is for the browser. And this will enable really cool things like streaming HTTP downloads, and then you pipe that into a image tag. Or you pipe it through a web worker, which does some transforms on it, and then you pipe that out of the web worker into a video tag, things like that. Uh, this is clearly something we need. There's this great slide by Max Ogden that shows like 40 different browser APIs that are kind of streams, and then on Node, they have just one. So <laughs> we need to unify all these primitives, and I'm working on it. It's my next big thing after Promises. We have some buy-in from some implementers, but it's all very early stages. So if you can get involved, let us know. Nice, that's great. Um, uh, as for availability, um, ES6, yeah. how available is it in browsers? So Tracer is really awesome, I do want to emphasize. Um, it has a few features that don't transpile very well that add a lot of overhead when you use. But a lot of the more basic stuff or the more syntactic sugar stuff work out great. And you should definitely use that. Uh, Firefox has been implementing these things pretty rapidly and not even under a flag, which is great. So if you use Firefox or Firefox OS, you can just program with weak maps and arrow functions and various other crazy things right away. Chrome has a few things under flags. They have generators, um, which is a big deal. And uh, kind of sadly, it had to be implemented by Bloomberg instead of the Chrome team. But uh, I guess that's how open source goes, um, priorities and stuff like that. So Chrome still has flags. IE, actually, I forgot about this, IE 11 has implemented a few features. It's implemented the new data types, including weak map, and it's implemented let and const, which I didn't mention. Um, so it's coming. Um, use Tracer, use Firefox. If you're a node, just run with dash dash harmony. Nice, nice. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, Object Observe. I, was, it, was it originally targeted for ES6, and then it got moved to ES7? No, it was, it was always ES7, because they had a pretty good idea what they wanted in ES6, and it's really just been kind of tightening down the, the hatches on that for the last year. Tighten them way down, and then and then you're like, except for that whole <laughs> promises thing, let's just sneak that in there. Yeah. So it turns out when you write a really detailed spec with like everything worked out, then they're pretty much like, oh, well, well okay. Okay. Uh, also, it really helps the module loader API suck less because it can return promises instead of using callbacks. Yes. Uh, that's that's, that's a big one advantage. big reason. Yeah. Uh, Object Observe is part of the new ES7 release train, which is just put features out there as fast as you can, and when a year runs around and it's time for to go to the ECMA General Assembly, say, okay, that's it, that's ES7. 
So this is the this is the proposal from Raphael Raphael yes. Weinstein. Yeah, Raphael Weinstein had this proposal, and everybody pretty much likes it. Where it's a more iterative process, where champions of these different features just put their things out there sooner and do their own spec text and get it incorporated. And once a year, they just ship a version. It's no more this monolithic work on it for four years. Yeah, it's kind of more like the the every six week release cycle of Chrome and Firefox. Right. Just let's apply it to standards right. instead. But languages are a little bit more complicated than than browsers. Yes, well, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I, I I'm really excited about that like, kind of like pace. I think it's gonna it's it's gonna avoid some of this issue that we had with ES6 kind of taking that, yeah. that time. Yeah, it's been it's been taking a while. Um, will Node be able to, to get rid of the require syntax? And like, is there are there conversations around moving over to the new module? Syntax? Yeah, um, this is kind of controversial because the Node people are very very stubborn, very set in their ways. Um, some more than others, though, and I think there's some important and influential Node people who recognize that you, know, you can't dig your head in the sand and avoid the future forever. Um, so their policy is very much when things land in V8, not under a flag, then we'll deal with them. So that's not gonna happen for a little bit of time, but once it does, then I think they're gonna say, okay, well, somebody else do the work for us, and then we're like, okay, that looks good, we'll put it in core. and. You know, this is kind of a, a crazy idea, but one of the things they're contemplating is because, because they've been working on Node for so long, they have the rewrite bug. They're like, ah, oh, we just could have done everything so much better, um, but we can't break backwards compatibility. That would, that would be bad. So what if when you did import HTTP, you got Node 2 HTTP, and when you did require HTTP, you got Node 1? So they're even kind of excited about ES6 modules from that perspective, uh, but that's, that's a crazy idea. It's not official policy in any way. It's just something they're floating around. Yeah, that's cool. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dominic. This is great.